Welcome to the CSIS Kajit Asia podcast, where we think deeply and reflect on policy in Asia. I'm your host, Will Coulson. In this episode, we explore the story of Chinese soccer, or football. As China continues to develop, the country and its leaders are constantly seeking yardsticks to measure their growth and demonstrate their power to both their own citizens and the world. Like the Beijing Olympics, the growth of the Chinese Soccer League, called the Super League, along with the performance of China's national teams in qualifying for the World Cup, is another benchmark of China's re-entry into the global stage. In January 2016, Chinese football teams surprised the sporting world by signing many high-profile international players. High-profile Brazilians, such as Ramirez, Paulinho, and Robinho, and Colombians, such as Freddy Guarín and Jackson Martinez. This took up headlines normally reserved for clubs in Europe like Manchester United or Barcelona. High spending on players and World Cup winning managers, tens of millions of dollars, comes at a time when China's economy is cooling off following decades of unprecedented growth and while investment in other sectors is struggling. CSIS's Scott Kennedy explains. Certainly, um, the trajectory um, is, is of a, a slowing economy and one that, that definitely needs to restructure. Uh, but nevertheless, um, Chinese companies, uh, investors, the population, they still have a lot of, of cash on hand, even though there's a significant amount of debt as well. And uh, Chinese are smart investors, and they are always looking for opportunities, uh, even when times are tough, because sometimes even then the prices are low, or they're trying to think about the next wave of potential growth. And certainly in China, uh, uh, focusing on uh, consumption, on po- popular consumption as Chinese wages rise and there's a much larger middle class uh, and a lot of Chinese who like sports, who attend events domestically. Chinese pay a lot of attention to uh, global soccer, European soccer and elsewhere. Uh, and if you ever have gone to a Chinese soccer game, it's a pretty rowdy, excited crowd. Uh, so it makes sense uh, for Chinese businesses to think about this growing area of of, of, consum- of consumption. Uh, soccer, uh, at, at the same time, um, Chinese companies are not only looking for consumers in China, they're looking for consumers abroad. Uh, so if you're a cell phone maker like Huawei or ZTE uh, or even a, a company that uh, sells other products, uh, you are looking to establish your brand uh, beyond China as well in Europe, South America, and elsewhere. The, uh, Huawei was a inve- uh, one of the large uh, sponsors of the world recent World Cup. Uh, I'm sure they'll do that again. And and so for uh, Chinese companies that are looking to expand their brand and and not simply be OEMs but but sell their products globally. Uh, Soccer is a, a good place to place your products and your brand uh, to reach an extremely big audience. To gain a deeper understanding of Chinese football, we sought out additional expertise. My name is John Jewardon. I'm an English football writer based in, in Asia, and I write about Asian football and have been doing so for the past 17, 18 years. John explains that there's not typically a direct connection between macroeconomic performance and spending on a soccer league. Well, I think if you look at football in general, I mean, even in, in some of the European leagues, like sometimes 
know, there's not much connection between how, well, it's not always a connection at least between how an economy is doing in a broader sense and how much uh, money football teams spend. I mean, the English Premier League, they, you know, the, the most obvious example is a league that for most of the, you know, for the, the past 10 or 15 years, people have said, how long can this continue? Because uh, the economy is not being great for most of the time, but still it does continue. Um, and China, of course, there's people who know more, much more than I do about the the, the good economy and what's going to happen, but still, it's still the, the second biggest economy in the world. Uh, some of these companies who, who have invested in, in football, a lot of them started out as a, um, uh, as property developers, and you know, and, and in the past at least, there's been some huge profits there. And I think so. The, the, this kind of surplus cash around, I mean, perhaps it, it, it could be argued, you know, maybe in, in if the slowdown continues for years to come, maybe. Who knows? Perhaps it could have some effect, but I think the political will is is there for the spending to happen, and 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 there's there's money to be spent, and we've seen you know in, in other fields, you know China China building, making all kinds of um, international uh, investments in 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 one of the uh, stadium diplomacy in Africa or uh, trying to get involved with high speed rail links in Southeast Asia. So I think uh, money is not a problem. I think for for the right projects, and I think at the moment. Football is seen as, you know, as as, as a big project, especially in soft power terms. Whereas, as we know, I mean, China is perhaps uh, lags behind its um, its economic and political might. But where is the money coming from? Unlike some international leagues, for the Chinese Super League, the investment is primarily local, coming from Chinese companies like Evergrande, a real estate developer. Most of its company is coming from local sources, as I mentioned, you know, property developers. Um, Evergrande, who who are you know, the most successful team, you know, they 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 are a property developer, but quite, but in recent years they've diversified into all kinds of different businesses. You can go to the Guangzhou, watch the football team play. You can drink Evergrande bottles of water, and you know they are all kind of involved in all kinds of things at the moment. But yeah, I think most of the private business seems to be uh, property. Um, you've seen more and more different kinds of companies companies coming in involved now. Suning, who who uh, bought uh, Jiangsu. Uh, a few months ago, and spent big money since then. They've got thousands of huge retail department stores in China, um, and there's also some state-run, uh, state state-run um, facilities like uh, the, the the Shandong Luneng, who, who own the club on the east coast. There, it's a kind of state-run electricity uh, provider, and these two are getting involved. But most of it's coming from the private sector. Um, you know, perhaps. There are, there are theories, you know, that of course, uh, with President uh, Xi Jinping openly wanting uh, China to at least punch its weight in, in, in the world game, which it hasn't done ever in the past, that there's certainly some political encouragement for private companies to get involved and uh, you know, make connections, uh, do favours, and if you're spending money to help uh, China on the world stage, then maybe that could be useful for your company or yourself in years to come. Scott Kennedy agrees, pointing out that the Chinese Communist Party leadership's focus on soccer creates an impetus for private investment, but also creates its own challenges in fostering success. I think businessmen in, in China, whether they're in northern or southern China, read the newspapers just as much as everybody else, and they know what the priorities of the leadership are in China. Uh, and they also know what's popular. Uh, and so when you've got a sport like soccer, which has got a growing popularity in China, and you've got a leadership like Xi Jinping that is interested in the sport, um, it's not a bad investment, and certainly, um, I think they're trying to, um, you know, ad uh, acquire these players from abroad, 
uh, helps build the, the brand of their soccer club, uh, and uh, which they think will grow in time. And if they ever sold their, their, their clubs to, somebody, to some other investor, uh, the initial investment they would have in any certain player would, would yield benefits. And then they also probably have other businesses uh, of, of consumer products or media where they can get multiple benefits from having the, these players on their teams. And then from the Chinese government's perspective, they've tried to increase, improve the quality of play within their professional leagues. Uh, and one way of doing that is to bring in uh, international players who uh, have performed well in other leagues, uh, more advanced clubs, uh, to um, have the other players who are, are local learn from them, play with them, raise the quality of their play. Uh, it draws more attention to the leagues. Uh, and that supposedly, hopefully, from the Chinese leadership's pers uh, perspective, creates a virtuous circle or where the quality of play will increase over time. It's, it's not a guaranteed thing. Um, the leadership's focus on, on soccer um, is certainly p part of China's long-term um, fixation on performing well internationally, in sports, in science, and in other fields uh, to raise China's global reputation and to highlight the success of the reform era. Uh, and so, you know, Chinese want to perform well at the Olympics, in uh, get Nobel prizes in, in science, uh, and uh, do well in other other sports. So um, the it's, it's not surprising that they would want to continue to invest. It's, it's just interesting that in, in the case of soccer, uh, China's performed so poorly for so long, uh, the, the possibilities of, of them turning things around se seem remote, uh, particularly using a top-down method of, of basically government-forced um, uh, programs, uh, schools, training facilities, which remind many in the West of sort of an East German communist-style uh, recruitment and training system, which may work for some sports, but it may it the chances of it working for soccer seem to be relatively low. The other clubs in Asia that have done much better than China, uh, Japan in particular, don't use this approach, um, and 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 they have much smaller populations. So it's it seems to me that uh, China's sees many different problems and they want to hammer for every single one of those problems, which is about uh, extensive government intervention and guidance of spending to get a goal, uh, to achieve a goal, which they may or may not uh, accomplish that with that method. Overseas investment has not come yet, but John Jordan says that global football powers like Manchester City are rumored to have their eyes on the Chinese Super League. But will they be allowed to invest? Yeah, well, there's not been much thing overseas investment as yet. I mean, you could even argue perhaps it's... Um, you know, maybe China doesn't really want foreign businesses to own Chinese football teams. Um, it, it, I think there could be there's, there's some interesting possibilities. Whereas, you know, Manchester City or or the City Football Group, uh, of which Manchester City is a, is a most visible, most famous club in in that uh, company stable. Uh, that company owns uh, or uh, teams in, of course, uh, the U.S. with New York and City and. Uh, uh, Australia, Melbourne City has a stake in a team in Japan, 
and, uh, and there's certainly lots of rumours that he could get involved in, in, in the Chinese Super League with Beijing, um, a possible uh, recipient of some investment, but that remains to be seen. Rival leagues and national teams in Asia are a key part of the backdrop for the rise of Chinese football. We asked Victor Cha, CSIS Korea Chair and author of Beyond the Final Score, The Politics of Sports in Asia, about the unique nature of sports rivalry in Northeast Asia. Here's what Victor had to say. I would say it's very intense, whether you're talking about within each country or whenever you have a pan-Asian event. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of intense rivalry. I think Asians, just like other parts of the world, are avid sports fans, um, uh, both professional sports and uh, amateur sports. Um, but I think in Asia, there's always a little bit more that's attached to sports and sporting rivalries. A part of it has to do with the history in the region, I think. Uh, part of it has to do with um, sort of the development state in many of these countries. Sports, particularly national sports, uh, are very much often used as a benchmark by countries with regard to development, where they stand on the development ladder. Um, and so, for example, in Asia, we've had uh, three uh, Summer Olympics, right, in Tokyo in 1964, in Seoul in 1988, and in Beijing in 2008. And in all those cases, it was not just a sporting event. It was a mark, right, of national development. Uh, in Korea's case, a coming out party as a democracy. In China's case, China's arrival after three decades of modernization. And in Japan's case, the return to the international society, you know, after a prolonged period uh, after the end of the Second World War. So, you know, it's not just sports. There's much more that's attached to it. Nationalism in Northeast Asia is a key driver for sports competition. But Victor Cha explains it all comes back to branding. Well, there's clearly a good dose of nationalism involved. I mean, anytime you have athletes that are competing on the field or on the track or on the rink, uh, you know, and they're wearing the colors of your nation and you're competing against another country. I mean, that creates emotion. It creates nationalism. I mean, sport does this. Sport connects to nationalism this way in a way that, you know, any other form doesn't. Like music doesn't create that sort of nationalism, except if you're talking about the national anthem. Uh, art doesn't, but sports does, right? And, and so I think... Um, in cases of countries like China, Japan, and others, when they're competing against each other, when their national teams or national athletes are competing against each other, naturally there's, a, there's that extra urge to win. Uh, in some ways, it's supposed to mean some sort of hit historical redemption or, or something of that nature. And you can see it. You've seen it in the past when in, uh, in uh, uh, football matches um, where uh, one, one team is winning, you look at the sort of placards that people put up. It's not just rooting your team on. You know, they're historical references or all these other things, particularly when it comes to playing Japan. So um, so I think there is a good dose of nationalism. There's the, the heat of the competition itself, but I think there's a good dose of nationalism, particularly among the fans and the viewers, uh, that gets expressed in, in the way fans support their teams and in the way the media frames the event. I think you see a lot of those sorts of things. I mean, in the case of China and football, you know, I mean, they're obviously not the first to this. I mean, Japan started the J-League, Korea started the K-League, you know, and, and China's moving in this direction. And um, <clears throat> I think a lot of this does have to do, I don't know if it's with prestige as much as it is with branding, the national brand. Um, 
you know, China as a developed country needs to feel like it has a strong football league that can compete at a global level. I mean, that's part of the brand of modern uh, modern China. Um, you know, unlike some places in the West, these sorts of endeavors are not money makers, right? Um, whether you're talking about the baseball leagues in Japan and Korea, or you're talking about football. Um, in other places, like the United States, the National Football League makes a lot of money. Uh, Major League Baseball makes a lot of money. The NBA makes a lot of money. But for many of these teams that are sponsored by companies, right, whether it's Doosan or Yomuri or whoever, um, these aren't money-making events. They're really much more about branding. Um, and I think uh, you'll see the same thing when it comes to China. Future revenue growth for the Chinese Super League will likely come from television broadcast rights one of the principal ways that modern sports leagues make money. John Jordan explains the situation in China following a massive new TV deal. Oh, well, until recently, it was very low. Um, I think, I should have checked this, but off the top of my head, uh, until last season, it is about, uh, the league was paid in total about $1.5 million US dollars a year. Um, and this from, and they signed a recent deal for the next five years, which will be something like, I think, uh, increase over $100 million a, a year will, will be, has been paid to the, the Super League by broadcasters. And uh, and this is, of course, a big deal because if you have, if this money that is coming from the broadcasters is, is spread around the game, um, it could make a big difference because one of the real problems of Chinese football has historically had is that, you know, well, the, the, the main problem is um, the fact that people just don't really play the game. Uh, you always talk to people in Europe and, and, and either US or wherever, and they say, well, if you've got 1.3 billion people, it's only a matter of time before you can find 11 world-class players and put them on the field, but it's not really a matter of time, it's a matter of money. And uh, and money, if money can get kids playing football to the extent you know that it can become part of the football, of a culture playing football that's spread around the country, that could be, I think, uh, the game changer. I mean, at the moment, I think historically, um, Chinese parents don't really see football as uh, a viable profession for their kids and the, the one-child policy gets tied into that to an extent. Um, if, you, if you go to China, you, you, you never, I mean, I, I've been to China many times, I don't think I've ever seen anybody playing football in a kind of casual way in, in, on the street or, you know, in a bit of a wasteland or in a park, it just, it just doesn't happen. I think this is something that's got to change to get kids playing. And So if kind of the, the TV money can feed down the leagues and you know, increase the average salary of you know the journeyman or the average Chinese player, um, and create more of a football culture in the media in general. Then perhaps the profession can be seen as as a more attractive and much more of a viable opportunity. When you combine that with uh, the investment that's now being made in in youth development, you know, at a government level and a nationwide level, in schools, um, facilities and nearly helping kids actually play the game, then that combination, in theory at least, you know, could make a difference and then add the, you know, the, the, the better coaches coming over, the better players coming over, and a more media profile, and who knows, perhaps in 10, 20, 30 years' time, that combination will, will bear some fruit. Which club in the Super League has the brightest outlook towards becoming the first real Chinese Super Club? A team recognized as a world giant like Real Madrid? Remember the name. Guangzhou Evergrande FC. Guangzhou Evergrande would be the obvious one because they've been around for a few years now and there's there's definitely a systematic plan and sustained investment on and off the pitch to, to make the club a success. Uh, since then, in the, in the past year or two, 
other teams and other clubs have started to spend money. We never quite know how long these things will last or how uh, stable it is, but certainly Guangzhou looks to have, it seems to have a stable um, footing in its eyes, but it's an um, amazing uh, soccer academy just outside the city. It's supposed to be the biggest in the world. Um, you know, it's expanding all the time. It's getting involved in more and more businesses and making contacts more and more around the world. So certainly based on past performance on and off the pitch, Guangzhou are, are, are the best known. They've been the best team. In five, they've won the last five Chinese Super League titles and two of the last three um, Asian Champions League titles, of course, will not win this year. Um, so they would be the best. And, and they have the ambition openly stated to become you know, a world football club and globally renowned. I think <clears throat> that can happen up to a point. I mean, you can, there's not really any team from outside the big European leagues that has done that. Um, but, you know, you would imagine that sooner or later it's going to happen and Guangzhou will have the, the size in, in, in the sense that you know, they have 45,000 watch them every week. They've got world-famous players playing for them. And, you know, if they can do something like they really want to, like win the FIFA Club World Cup, that will take them to the next level. I think it's debatable to see. I mean, what 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 people talk to people inside the club. What they want to be is is a top twenty team in the world, and the, you know you can debate how on how you define such a thing, and um, a lot of it is subjective. But um, certainly, I think with what they can be and have a good chance to be is become the, the biggest non-European club, and uh, and I think take it from there. But I think that that is a, is, is a realistic. Uh, goal for them. You could even argue that you know they're getting there already. But there's some huge historic South American teams um, that have been famous for decades. But you know financially they cannot compete with. It can even close competing with Guangzhou. Um, so I think it it depends also on, on how the Chinese football scene is perceived over the years. If, if, if the national team improves too and starts to qualify for World Cups and also starts to do well at World Cups, that will improve the image overall Chinese football and that will help but uh, it, it would take some kind of uh, seismic change in how well football is seen by fans and media around the world for Guangzhou to be one of you know the elite teams but it, it could happen in decades to come who knows but certainly they can become you know, the biggest non-European team that, that there is. One of the challenges for the Chinese league is that historically it has had problems with corruption both with match fixing and links to gambling consortiums in Macau. Similar to the early days of Major League Baseball in the United States, authorities have undertaken efforts to clean up the game in the last 10 years. We asked John Jordan, have Chinese authorities done enough to root out corruption? Well, I think a lot's been done. Um, compared to most countries, you know, at the end of the last decade, there were some serious uh, punishments handed out to officials and referees and other people who have been found to get involved in corruption and match fixing, which, of course, which has, which, uh, has been a problem, of course, um, over the years, but in, in Chinese football, it turned a lot of people away from the, the local game, turned a lot of sponsors away too. Um, <clears throat> so certainly, there's been a, a, a lot of, of work done, and uh, you know, and, and the punishments have been very severe, more severe than in, in pretty much anywhere else. It's like dropping ten-year prison sentences. Um, it's very difficult to say anywhere, especially in Asia, that any league is completely clean. You do hear things about there are still issues. In China, I mean, perhaps maybe less so these days in the Chinese Super League, but maybe a little bit lower down the pyramid. Um, you hear stories of things happening, but nothing uh, <clears throat> concrete at the moment. But certainly, things perhaps are still going on. But what should happen, what you hope will happen, is that um, as the money continues to rise 
in China, then you know, there'd be less incentive for players to get involved. High-level success for the Chinese national team has only been achieved by the Chinese women's team, which reached the final while hosting the Women's World Cup in Beijing in 1999. Scott Kennedy explains that the struggles of the men's national team have become a national obsession, and correcting it is connected to President Xi's idea of the China dream. You know, the Chinese women's team has had a really good run, uh, and they got to the finals of the, of the World Cup, then lost at the very end in a shootout in 99. Um, and they, they, I think, in, in more recent World Cups have uh, almost gotten to the, the finals and performed well. I don't, lately, they've not done quite as well, but they've always outperformed the men. Uh, I don't think that there's anything uh, physiological or special about the women versus the men. There are other Asian teams which have done really well on the men's side. Um, and um, so I, it's, it's, but Chinese scratch their head. Why have the women done much better than the men historically? It doesn't necessarily make sense. But it's the, the uh, lack of success internationally in soccer has um, driven the Chinese crazy. It's a national obsession, uh, and certainly it's one that Xi Jinping shares. And I think part of his idea of, of promoting the China dream uh, is in this area, in the area of sports, uh, having the Chinese uh, stand at the top of the global sports world, whether it's in soccer, whether it's hosting the Olympics in 2022, the Winter Olympics, uh, which China has uh, some history of, of, of winter sports, particularly ice skating. Uh, but if you know China's going to host the Olympics uh, outside Beijing uh, in, in six years, that's going to be new for many people. But for them, it's part of that continual effort to show China has arrived, China's a leader not just having a large economy, not just being the world's largest trader, but being an innovator, being a leader of sports, et cetera. So uh, it, all, it, all, it all fits together. It just is unclear whether their approach, which is more a top-down government-led approach as opposed to a bottom-up market-led approach, is going to generate the type of outcome that they'd like. One of the nice things about sports is, is that it's all decided on the field. Uh, you can't engineer an outcome. Uh, and the results are told by the scoreboard. So I think it's one of the nicest, clearest ways to know whether China's approach is going to work or not. Um, and so we'll just have to wait and see. And uh, in the meantime, we'll get to enjoy some more soccer on TV. The Chinese men's national team has been a source of perpetual disappointment. John Jordan explains their recent form is truly woeful. Well, yeah, I mean, the Chinese national team has been a source of... Um national disappointments and frustrations for, for years. Uh, I think the high point came at the start of the last decade when China qualified for the 2002 World Cup. Now, of course, at the time, that World Cup was hosted by South Korea and Japan, so you could argue perhaps it's a little bit easier than usual to qualify because the two great powers were not part of the qualification campaign because they had automatic qualification. But anyway, when China qualified for that World Cup, um, they lost all three games at that World Cup, didn't score a goal, which is, in itself is not a problem because the same thing happened when South Korea first got there and Japan first got there. But what Korea and Japan did, they kept going back to World Cup and slowly improved um, at every tournament. But China has not been back since, and then that's been, of course, a, a big problem. And in 2004, the Asian Cup, China hosted that competition and reached the final on home soil. So things seem to be doing okay. But since then, um, 
2006, 10 and 14 World Cups, China didn't even reach the final round of qualification when the, the, usually it's 10 or 12 Asian teams are left in the final round and they're fighting out for the four spots that Asia has. But China didn't even get that far and at the Asian Cup as well, um, 2007, 11, the game very disappointing. So it became a national joke and the expectations have been low and are still low. And perhaps it's that, that is, you know, the, the fact that um, you know, in, in the world's most popular sport, you know, China has been lagging way behind. and Things like the stats, you can see that I think China has played South Korea 30 times over the years and it's won just once. Um, which shows you how far behind it has been, even you know, behind uh, South Korea and then there's Japan as well, and now there's Australia as part of the Asian Football Confederation. Um, so I think people realise, maybe the government realised that, you know, that just these things just happen for a reason. They don't, and to change there needs to be real change that comes from the top as well as the bottom. And uh, and as I said, it takes time to change. But certainly the national team has historically been pretty poor. I mean, it's not terrible I mean, in Asian terms, it's been okay, but certainly nowhere near as, as good as it should be and it, has, it hasn't made any kind of mark on the world stage at all. Xi Jinping's interest in the game means that the leadership is now seeking ways to improve both the National League as well as the national team. In March 2016, the Chinese Football Association released a state-driven strategy to improve youth development and make China a world soccer superpower by 2050. We asked John to analyze China's goals. The key goals, well, there's three main uh, key goals and the, the short-term, medium-term and long-term. The short-term goal to be achieved by the end of this decade is, uh, I think, to get more kids playing football. And I think to have by the end of the, this decade to have 50 million people playing football on a regular basis, and I think 30 million of those should be children. And um, you know, if, if the, the schools program continues, you know, that seems achiev- achievable. Um, the medium-term goal is to be achieved by the, uh, the latest, sometime in the next decade, by the end of the next decade, is to be one of the best teams in, in Asia. Um, and it kind of depends, that depends how you do, how you define that. Certainly, there's like three or four clearly strong teams in Asia, South Korea, Japan, Australia, would be you know, recognised as the three best. And I think uh, at the moment, China's quite a long way behind, behind those three teams. I mean, it, it maybe could win a game, a single game, and when they, whether the situation is, is, is okay, but on a, on a consistently, China's got a long way to go. Um, and the problem when you're talking about catching these kind of countries that have got, you know, already established development systems, um, produce better players than China produces, and has lots of players playing in, in the big European leagues, is that it's okay to say we're going to catch them, but you have to remember also that these countries too are still developing and improving all the time. They will not be standing still. So to be a level pegging with Korea, Japan, Australia is going to be difficult, but to be one of the, the kind of the best of the rest, you know, to be with like Qatar, Uzbekistan, maybe Iraq and Iran, you know, that's certainly possible for China to be in the top five Asian teams. Um, so if that is the goal, not, not to be perhaps quite as good as the best, but to be, you know, around the top five mark is certainly possible in, in the next 10 or 12 years when China's not that far, I mean, not that far behind uh, all the, some of the good Asian teams, but, but quite far behind the best. But um, the, 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 of course, the main long-term goal is to, to, to be one, one of the best teams in the world by 2050, which incidentally is the, 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 the year that Japan wants to win the World Cup by. Um, 
again, it's, it's bit forward to to look that far ahead in the, in the future. But if everything goes well, it's certainly possible in in thirty four years. You know, if China, if everything goes perfectly, there's no there's, there's no there's no doubt that it's it's a possibility. I mean, if these if the youth system works as it should, and the the coaches get uh, improved and the, and the facilities are already already there, and if football culture grows, then certainly the next ten or fifteen years, and you should start to see a better class of Chinese football player being produced, and and that's a real key. If that starts to happen, that that that's what has to happen is China produces better players. I mean, not just one or two, but you know, starting with tens and tens and dozens, whatever. Um, and to keep doing it year on year. Um, anyone can produce one or two fantastic players, but to produce you know consistently lots of good young players is um, something that you know China's never done, and most Asian nations haven't done either. Um, so, if you should get a sense by you know the end of the you know ten years or twelve years from now. If you start to see consistently good young Chinese players coming through the system, then if, if that starts to happen, then 20 years after that, yeah, certainly it's possible that the China could be one of the best teams in the world. Victor Cha argues that growing the Chinese Super League and interest in the game also serves another purpose, the use of broader public infrastructure that is already in place. Creating these sorts of teams and leagues may not necessarily be money makers uh, like the National Football League is in terms of merchandising and, and branding and all of these sorts of things. But there is an economic rationale to it in the sense that especially countries like China that have just come off hosting major global, what, what are in the literature, what are called mega events, right? Whether it's the Olympics or the, uh, the Asian Olympics, they build all this infrastructure, stadiums, you know, things. And so they have to have some sort of economical use of those things after the major events are over. Otherwise, they just sort of stand as monuments to you know, economic mismanagement. And so there is an incentive to try to fill those stadiums, uh, to try to get advertisers, both domestically and internationally, around a league that they create, whether it's with football or with baseball or with other sorts of things. So I guess... You know, these are branding opportunities. They are. Um, they don't necessarily become the most profitable ventures, but especially coming off major mega events like the Olympics, uh, there's an infrastructure there that needs to be used. And and so in many cases, in Asia, Korea, and Japan also, uh, these these this creates a demand for um, uh, the uh, creating sporting events or leagues that can then attract the revenue and the advertising such that these facilities can continue to be used. Unlike issues such as Tibet or leadership finances, which are often blocked on Chinese social media and websites, the China Communist Party has been reluctant to censor criticism of Chinese soccer. Members of the sports media have not held back in their criticism of corruption and graft in the growing sport. I was in China watching a few games in the past few weeks and uh, some of these, uh, and a lot of the, the journalists I talked to were not were pretty scathing about some of the uh, uh, policies and programs being put forward by the government. The, uh, the the main criticisms were that there's lots of plans being put in place, but the plans were well, unlike South Korea and Japan. These plans are not coming from football people or the people who have experience in such things. They're coming from officials and bureaucrats who are just uh, seeking to to um, make targets. The ultimate goal for China is to host the men's FIFA World Cup. If China were to win a bid to host, Scott Kennedy thinks that the fans and the sponsors would come. I think it's 
probably a guarantee that the Chinese would love to host a World Cup, men's or women's. Um, of course, they would like when they host a World Cup to be able to field a team. Now, I think the host automatically gets a team to be in, but they'd also like not to be embarrassed. And uh, the only time the Chinese men's team has been in the World Cup was in 2002. They lost all three uh, opening round games, didn't score a goal in any of them. And they wouldn't want that to befall uh, their team if they were hosting. They'd like to do a, a, a little, at least a little better. So, uh, but certainly hosting a World Cup would uh, be consistent with China's efforts to host uh, the Summer and Winter Olympics, the Asian Games, uh, other major events, whether they've been in Beijing or other cities. That's been a key focus of China. And, and China already has a lot of soccer facilities. They might need to upgrade them for, for the World Cup. Uh, but if you consider the, the fan base um, and the amount of attention uh, through uh, Chinese social media, uh, was heavily had a heavy presence uh, in Brazil for the World Cup there, and even though it's on the other side of the planet, uh, and there were also a lot of Chinese tourists who attended, so you, I, I would think uh, that in terms of dollar signs or remnant B signs and uh, not global prestige, uh, the Chinese would love uh, to host the World Cup. So I, I would be quite surprised if we didn't see in the next few rounds of decision-making an effort by the Chinese to, um, to win that, to win hosting. John Jordan agrees that China will likely seek to host a men's World Cup soon to demonstrate its improvement in the sport. And hosting the World Cup, yeah, I think it's going to happen um, sooner rather than later in football terms because you know, China, if China wants it, I think FIFA will be delighted for China to have to host a World Cup. It, it can certainly do it. It's a huge market. Um, and we've seen in other countries, especially like South Korea and Japan, um, what World Cup can do for for a host nation, and certainly it would uh, be a very, very big deal in China, and um, and that could push things to the next level and inspire the kids, and again creating the football culture that every successful football nation needs, and uh, yeah, and just um, improving improving the facilities that are already pretty good, and. Uh, that yeah, that you would imagine sometime in the 2030s, if China wants it, um, it will get it. The rise of Chinese football and the Chinese Super League has had a multitude of stories. Success of the men's and women's national teams, performance of individual clubs, and the progress of youth development will depend on hard work, cash, and the input of many Chinese. China's leaders, including Xi Jinping, have staked a significant amount of national prestige on improving their game to demonstrate the preeminence of the Middle Kingdom in sports and as a soft power tool. Recently, China's men's team managed a minor miracle by squeezing into the third round of Asian qualifying for the 2018 World Cup, overcoming their tiny neighbor Hong Kong to get there. Yet on the club side, aspiring super club and defending champion Guangzhou Evergrande were eliminated at the group stage of the Asian Champions League. Overseas, a Chinese businessman recently purchased Birmingham-based club Aston Villa in England, and the Chinese investors of the Suning Commerce Group also purchased a majority stake in the Italian giant Inter Milan. As China's role in the beautiful game grows, here at CSIS, we'll be watching. That's our show. 
Thanks to Dr. Scott Kennedy and Dr. Victor Cha for their insights, and a very special thanks to John Jordan for his time and insight. You can follow John's coverage of Asian soccer on the New York Times and the Guardian websites. Audio editing for this podcast was done by Lauren Abuali. This podcast was written and produced by Jeffrey Bean. You can always find more at kajadasia.com and csis.org. I'm Will Coulson. Thanks for listening.